Today on Government Matters, a special vaccine rollout for federal employees could be coming. One of the members of Congress who wants it reviews next steps. The Defense Department improves its bookkeeping, but still lots of questions from the Pentagon Inspector General about what money is going where. And the number one story of the week, empty jobs all across government a month into the Biden administration. How fast can those chairs get filled? Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Francis Rose. Essential employees in the District, Maryland, and Virginia have begun receiving coronavirus vaccines. A group of representatives from the D.C. area have begun an effort to make it easier for federal employees to get shots sooner. Democratic Congressman Don Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District. He wrote a letter with six of his colleagues urging the Centers for Disease Control to create an allocation of vaccines for federal employees that the federal government would administer. Congressman, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. How would this allocation work and how would it get shots into arms of federal employees sooner? Well, the, the key, Francis, is most folks, at least living in metropolitan Washington, have access to them slowly through the local governments where they're you know, titrated based on age and, and pre-existing condition. But we have so many federal employees that have not been classified as essential, but really are. Um, for example, our, our poor IRS employees are responsible now, not only for processing tax returns, but for getting checks out to all the folks through the relief packages. And those are all tricky things and it's tough to do from home. Our social security people are incredibly overburdened. Uh, and often that has to be in person. They can't do it from home. And so we really need to make sure that these people are protected. How much of the issue in your view and in the view of your colleagues, Congressman, is that what you're describing there? And how much of it is the rollout of the shots in the greater metropolitan area? I don't have any visibility into the district on a personal basis. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. There's a challenge there between what the county's doing versus the state. I know there are similar issues in, in your uh, state of Virginia. How much of it's that versus what the federal employees are, are doing service-wise? Uh, I think, Francis, that you know, our, our state and local governments are all adapting as quickly as they can to understand how to do vaccine distribution at this level. It seems like if we look back to 2020, that the federal government did a, a good job supporting the rapid development of vaccines. I mean, faster than ever before, but spent almost no time thinking about how to get it into people's arms. I think the total amount spent by the federal government on vaccine preparation, you know, administration was like $6 million, uh, almost nothing. Um, so the dilemma is though, that if you're a 50 year old worker at uh, the EPA or, or uh, Department of Interior, um, you're not prioritized at all, uh, even though the work you're doing is essential for the American people. So this is not a, a diss on local governments or state governments, but rather the recognition that you and I understand how essential these federal workers are for the good of the country, and therefore let's get them vaccinated as quickly as we can. And regarding the operations at the state and local level, I don't mean to suggest that it's anything except tremendously complicated to do something of this scale. Um, how would you like to see this work? Do you have an idea? Do you and your colleagues have an idea of who you want to administer it, where the allocations would come from? Or is this just to the, C the message to the CDC, it's time to get this started? 
Well, I think the first thing is just to have the vaccines. As we've seen with local government, often they have very good systems set up and no vaccine to administer. So getting that special allocation. And now that President Biden is buying, you know, hundreds of millions more, hopefully we can get that but with the CDC's decision. And then in terms of the actual administration, uh, I tend to leave that up to the various agencies and departments how best to make that happen. You can certainly imagine that, for example, the EPA would say, okay, everybody, you, this is the week for everyone to come down here and get your shot. You know where to park, you know which door works, um, you're surrounded by your friends, and, and then uh, be ready to be coming back to work full time in a couple of days. What are you hearing from your constituents about their abilities to get vaccines and, and their desire for some type of a system like this, Congressman? Uh, I, I'm finding enormous um, thirst for it. I don't know anybody in, in Northern Virginia, really metropolitan DC, that doesn't want the vaccine. And in fact, our constituent service phones are ringing off the hook with people saying, how can you move me up the list for this reason or, or for that? Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. Anything that shortens the time between um, when, when you're vulnerable and when you get a vaccine is a good thing, especially because, Francis, as you know, there's a race now between our ability to vaccinate people and the arrival of this B117 UK variant. It's much more contagious. I don't know that it's more lethal, but you're, you're, if you're around it, you're a lot more likely to get it. And the way to, mat to minimize the spread of this new variant is to get people vaccinated. Uh, Tony Reardon, the president of the National Treasury Employees Union, was on the program this week suggesting that uh, federal employees should have administrative leave time to be able to go get vaccines. If your program uh, becomes, uh, if this program comes into existence, strikes me that might not even be necessary if people are actually going to their workplaces to get these vaccines, Congressman. I, for instance, I think you're absolutely right. But I agree with, with Tony Reardon. In the meantime, it's essential that people have time to go, you know, wait in line out at uh, the, the government center in Fairfax or, you know, wherever the big vaccine places are. Um, uh, I took my, my wife two Fridays ago and it was a half day journey to get out there, park, get in line, go through all the things, wait after you've gotten the shot. It was very efficient, but it still took half the day. Mm -hmm. What uh, response, if anything, have you gotten from the CDC? You and your colleagues sent this letter this week. Any word back yet? We haven't yet, and I'm not, I'm not bitter about that at all. I think they're pretty overwhelmed. I'm very excited about the new CDC director, Dr. Walensky. Um, she seems to be a, a home run, and we're moving in the right direction. We have less than a minute left, Congressman. What else would you watch as this uh, uh, the, as the vaccine rollout happens in the next couple of weeks as it pertains to the federal workforce, sir? Francis, I think the biggest thing is to make sure that our federal workers, with all of us, realize that just getting the vaccine doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to protect everyone else. It looks like there's good news about transmission, but still, I've been vaccinated since for a couple of weeks now, but I wear my mask everywhere outside. I try to stay socially distant. I try to stay as isolated as I can until we're all safe. Congressman, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Francis, very much. Up next, a bookkeeping boost for the Department of Defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why no news could be good news for the Pentagon. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Results are in for the new annual Pentagon audit, and this year's audit looks a lot like last year's. 
But the Office of Inspector General at DOD says it's tracking improvements. Carmen Malone is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, Reporting at the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Carmen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the big picture in the work that you did here, understanding that is tremendously complicated and tremendously vast? Chris, good morning, Francis, and thanks for having me. Um, really, the big takeaway from this year's or the fiscal year 20 audit was that there was progress, but still additional progress needs to be made. Um, I want to kind of focus on that progress first, and that is the big thing that I think people kind of overlook is that those that had clean opinions or unqualified opinions in previous years they maintain those opinions in fiscal year 20. That's not always an easy task, and I think people need to give credit where credit is due. Um, another huge improvement that we saw was that the Defense um, Information Systems Agency, DISA, the DISA Working Capital Fund, actually moved its fiscal year 19 disclaimer of opinion to a fiscal year 20 unqualified or clean opinion. And then finally, we actually saw um, an elimination or reduction in material weaknesses across the department and some of its components. So I'll get a little bit more into that as we continue talking. But I think it's important to note that while we did see progress, there is significant progress that still needs to be made in order for the department to get to that clean opinion it is seeking. And so one of the ways that we here at the OIG like to think of it is that it's important for the DOD and its components to continue um, developing those strong, sustainable business processes and internal controls that will ultimately lead to that clean audit opinion. And the word that you use there, I think, that's the most important, based on the experts that I've talked to on this program over the years, is sustainability. Um, the fact that there wasn't much backsliding or any that I saw in, in, in the report may be the most important thing. Is that a fair thought on my part? I think that's a very fair thought. And, you know, as I mentioned to you last year, this is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And while we saw that progress, um, there was a lot that didn't change, but it didn't necessarily backslide, which is why you're going to hear my message doesn't change much from last year. What are the actions that these various organizations undertook, Carmen? to drive the progress that you talked about some moments ago? Are there common themes among what these disparate organizations have done throughout the department? You know, I think one of the common themes is even through its changes in leadership, we still see that strong tone at the top and a support for these financial statement audits. And I think that's important because if you don't have that support from the top, you, it's not going to flow down through the organization. And so you're not going to see those um, changes and sustainability and controls. People are going to look for the quick fixes, um, and that's not going to work to maintain those opinions. We also saw some significant um, improvements in fund balance with Treasury across multiple uh, components. And that, that was um, a huge success for them this year, and it actually allowed the DOD to move its goal date for um, eliminating that material weakness or downgrading that material weakness to fiscal year 2022. That's a pretty significant uh, uh, reduction in that timeline from the way this was when this process started several years ago. I want to talk about one of the uh, areas where uh, you report that work still needs to be done. You write, the DOD had wide-ranging weaknesses in financial management systems that prevented it from collecting and reporting accurate, reliable, timely financial and performance information. That's an ongoing problem, and it's not just in the Defense Department. 
Are you, is that an area where you're seeing a little bit of progress or is that an area where not much is happening yet and it's something that you would like to see the department emphasize? It's actually an area where we are seeing um, some progress. And so when we started this a couple years ago, we were more worried about the design of the controls within the system and whether they were designed properly. And so we're starting to see the auditors, um, the IPAs or independent public accountants, um, we're seeing them move to testing the effectiveness of those controls. So while we still have a lot of notices of findings and recommendations, what we call NFRs, they're different types of NFRs. These are about making sure that they're not, the controls aren't just designed appropriately, but they're also operating. And so we're, we continue to see access control issues um, and some security management issues, but those are actually getting better and we're seeing them on less systems. Uh, we also saw the department start to look at systems that weren't necessarily tested in uh, fiscal year 19 or fiscal year 20 and how the findings could be applied to other systems. I'll ask you a question that I asked you last time we talked, and that is when we get together a year from now and have this conversation again, are there certain marks in these areas of progress that you'll be watching that you expect the department to hit, or will you just be looking for some measure of progress in each of these areas? You know, I think we're going to be looking at um, inventory because in fiscal year 20, due to the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic, we weren't able to get out there as much as we wanted to in inventory, nor was the department. And so they weren't able to make that progress. And, we're, and we are starting to see limited travel um, to, to help with that particular material weakness. Um, we are expecting to see additional uh, improvements in fund balance with Treasury this year, as well as financial reporting. And so I think it's gonna be important that as we get closer to summer and fall, and we start seeing which components have really started making progress, that we'll be able to get out there and make sure that we're able to test what needs to be tested and make sure that those controls over financial reporting are in place for a timely issuance of the financial statements. Um, I know that the department is currently working on its fiscal year 2021 priorities, and so it will also be interesting to see what they come out with, their priority list, and we'll focus a little bit on those priorities as well. Carmen Malone, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you. You can find a link to the IG's work on the audit at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, the number one story of the week, open seats at the heads of federal agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the confirmation process for President Biden's picks, and what's taking so long? You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week, the delay of two votes this week on the nomination of Neera Tandon to become the director of the Office of Management and Budget is the latest bump in the road for President Biden getting his top leadership team in place. The Defense Department lacks even names of nominees for some of its top jobs. 
Ann Joseph O'Connell is appointed Senior Fellow of the Administrative Conference of the United States and a law professor at Stanford University. She's writing about the actings in the Biden administration for the Brookings Institution. Aaron Mehta is Deputy Editor and Senior Pentagon Correspondent for Defense News, writing about the vacancies at DOD without candidates. Both uh, welcome to you. Uh, thanks for coming on the program. And a lot of emphasis has been placed on this program and in the general conversation in Washington about the non-Senate-confirmed jobs that President Biden has filled. Is it possible that that's negating the lack of nominees for some of these Senate-confirmed jobs? Um, it's possible, though President Biden's pace on nominations is not off compared uh, to recent administrations. But uh, we have seen uh, the incredible reliance on these so-called acting officials uh, under the Vacancies Act. Is the fact that that's the case doing anything, in your view, to impede the progress of uh, the agencies, or is it so early still in the administration that we're not to that tipping point yet? We don't know yet. Um, and sometimes actings are good and sometimes actings are bad. I mean, what the Vacancies Act allows a president to do uh, is if you fill the so-called first assistant position, so the first assistant to the vacant Senate confirmed job, that's the default acting official uh, under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Um, and so you definitely want to have those first assistant jobs filled while the appointments process, which is slow and dysfunctional, uh, churns. Uh, but there are concerns sometimes with acting officials. Uh, in terms of the stature they have uh, or the ability uh, to carry out uh, particular policies and missions of the agencies. So many actings do an incredible job while this process works its way through. Aaron, what is your sense of what's happening in the Defense Department based on the fact that there are actings uh, right now leading all of three of the, the services and there are a number of other positions that have acting folks in, in, uh, in capacity? Yeah, you know, the Pentagon is a unique building in a lot of ways in, in Washington, uh, one of which is that you have this whole core, not just of civil servants, but of the uniformed military officers, the joint staff, uh, which is almost its own version of the policy shop at the Pentagon. There's been a lot of uh, tensions over the last couple of years, going back to the end of the Obama administration, particularly under the Trump administration, where civilians said, hey, we're not getting uh, the support, or we're not getting our voices heard. The uniformed officers are kind of running roughshod over us a little bit. We need to reset the civil military balance. There are people who argue, and a lot of scholars who argue, that having people in these acting positions, even very qualified people, means that the uniform officers are going to have more juice and be able in meetings to kind of push through in a way that they couldn't if they were fully confirmed individuals. So certainly there are, there are many actings uh, in the building. There are about 70 people the Pentagon has announced who are perform either acting performing duties or just below the level of Senate confirmed who have come in. People who are you know, very talented, have a lot of experience, but the big question is, are they gonna have the juice that a fully confirmed person is? And a lot of experts say no. And do you expect to see the, the, the flow, the pace of this increase in the next 30 to 90, uh, 90 days? Uh, is this something that uh, is just a supply problem or is it more of a process problem inside uh, the various organizations that are supplying these nominees? So yes and no. I mean, it's still incredibly early to be measuring nominations and to be measuring uh, confirmations. The 100-day mark is a 
favorite mark of commentators uh, and scholars. Uh, but there's some really interesting data that just came out by Professor Dave Lewis at Vanderbilt, uh, which showed that uh, in looking at the number of vacant Senate confirmed positions in recent administrations, uh, that on average 29% of them never received a nomination, not a single nomination in the first two years uh, of uh, the past uh, three administrations. It was higher uh, under President Trump than under President Obama, but still under President Obama, 27% of these Senate confirmed uh, positions did not receive a nominee in the first two years. What are you hearing, Aaron, about uh, the pace increasing inside the Defense Department? You know, it has to increase at some point. Uh, there's only been three names put forth. Two of them, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks have already uh, been confirmed. We expect Colin Call, who is the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy nominee, to get a hearing shortly. Uh, but they were all announced before the end of 2020. Uh, so since the new year and certainly since inauguration, there have been no names put forth. The expectation is there will be names at some point, hopefully soon, for some of the Undersecretary of Defense and uh, Service Secretary jobs. A uh, White House official told me that part of the issue they've had is that because of the uh, confirmation of Biden's electoral win was held up so long, the FBI wasn't able to start doing some background checks that are required for the SASC procedure, the Senate Armed Services Committee confirmation procedure. And so there's some officials who are just caught in a backlog right now. The hope is that we'll start seeing some nominees soon. Uh, it's getting close to budget time when decisions have to be made. It's getting close to when some uh, reviews are going to be coming due. And certainly, I think the Biden team would want to have its fully confirmed people in place, or at least named, when those decisions start to have to happen. Aaron, Ann, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.